We're at a bit of a weird point in the cycle of the COVID-19 pandemic just now. We've had well over a million cases, more than 1,500 deaths, and most of us will know someone who's had the virus. But for many people, life has never been closer to the pre-2020 normal than right now. People are back in the office, kids are back at school, the clubs are open, the rugby's on, and the crowd is loud. In some ways it feels a wee bit post-COVID. But it's not. 7,000 people have reported contracting COVID-19 in the past 24 hours and 24 more people... 27 more deaths of people with COVID are being reported 27 today. 27 new community cases and the seven-day rolling average is 6,059. Publicly reported deaths for the pandemic is now 1,390. So, is this it? Five, six, seven thousand cases a day, nine or ten deaths a day couple of dozen people in ICU, in the thick of an especially nasty flu season, with a strained health system already showing some pretty big cracks. Overworked, understaffed and under extreme pressure. That's not just the situation at Middlemore Hospital, but also at almost every other DHB in the country, with a massive influx of patients suffering winter illnesses. Our hospitals right now are heaving under pressure as the country sniffles its way through the first flu season that we've had in two years. I'm Emil Donovan and today on The Detail, Aotearoa COVID and the healthcare system. Where are we at now? What are we doing? And where do we go from here? Mark Dalder is a senior political reporter with Newsroom. One thing that we're hearing from time to time, Mark, is that we're sort of entering into or living in a post-COVID world. Um, We're not living in a post-COVID world. I don't think that we will ever live in a post-COVID world, just like we'll never really live in a a post AIDS world, you know, that this is a virus that will now uh, be with us probably forever, at least for many, 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 many years. You could say that we're in a post pandemic world. And I think that, you know, there are a range of views on this, but everyone agrees eventually COVID will no longer become or be a pandemic. And, and sort of there's a, an increasing acceptance that we are out of the, the emergency phase of the pandemic, certainly. If you, if you think about COVID is still extremely harmful, it's still very serious, but compared to the level of damage that it was capable of doing in in March 2020... New advice to the government shows there could be at least 14,000 deaths in New Zealand if the current efforts to control and eradicate COVID-19 fail. We have vaccines now, we have treatments, we have a better understanding of the virus. From a global perspective... The, that, that emergency phase of the pandemic, I think it would be fair to say, is over. You you wrote in a piece a couple of weeks ago, Mark, government policy and public attitudes since the peak of the Omicron wave seem to have been undergirded by an assumption that COVID-19 is over. The pandemic has hit us, swept through us, killed a few hundred people and moved on. I want to focus on the government policy aspect of that. Can you just elaborate on that sentence? What are you inferring and how have you inferred that? Um, what I'm inferring is that the government's sort of treatment of COVID as an issue seems to be um, coming from a perspective of certainly we're not in the emergency phase anymore, but actually that it's not a huge issue worth 
all that much resource or focus. You know, they've moved the COVID portfolio away from Chris Hippens to, to Aisha Viral, who is, you know, a competent minister, but also in her first term in parliament ever. The broader points I think that I'm trying to make is that COVID-19 is still extremely serious. It is still killing 10 to 12 people every single day, um, which over a year is is 3,000 deaths, right? That's six times worse than the flu. Uh, but the way the government is responding to it doesn't seem to be interacting with that reality. It, it If you look at uh, the decision to keep New Zealand in orange, even when all the experts are saying we're about to have a huge second wave of cases. A new Omicron subvariant that's more transmissible and better at evading immunity is expected to trigger a winter wave sooner than expected. Potentially peaking as high as that first wave because of the BA5 subvariant. Uh, and the government has chose, said, look, there's, there's no reason we think that uh, we need to have any increase in restrictions at this stage. Perhaps you might that they might change their minds if cases really do rise. But it, it seems to be, I guess, uh, just a, a bit of wishful thinking here that that things are going to be okay and, and maybe not really enga- engaging with the reality of the situation right now, which is that, you know, if you talk to most people and said, actually, we're on course for uh, at current rates, you know, outside of the context of peaks, just in, on our sort of baseline uh, COVID levels, 3,000 deaths from COVID a year, I think most people would say, actually, we should do a bit more than we're doing. Uh, certainly, there are sustainable, long-term, low-cost things that we could be doing to reduce that burden uh, that the government doesn't seem to have an interest in engaging with. That's an interesting point, actually. Maybe this is a sort of like an expectations and reality thing, and that when the pandemic broke out in New Zealand in the first place, the worst case scenarios we're talking about, like 80,000, 90,000 people dying, perhaps after these peak waves and a couple of years on from those most serious predictions, we're looking at it and we're thinking, ah, you know, 3,000 people a year, it's not great, but it's not terrible. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, when you look at how um, how we focus on other issues, like say the road toll, you know, I would imagine if you uh, went back and looked at comparable media coverage, say, of the road toll versus of COVID for the past month, you'd find quite a bit more focus on uh, road deaths, despite, you know, our annual road toll is 300, which we get in terms of COVID. Every month, certainly a lot more people are dying because of COVID-19 than are dying in car crashes. But because fewer people are dying of COVID than we were sort of most worried about in that emergency phase of the pandemic before we had vaccines, before we had treatments and, and so on. Yeah, there is a bit of like change of expectations means actually uh, we're doing pretty well. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's you know, holding on to both those things at the same time. On the one hand, yeah, we are doing really well compared to what we were worried about in March 2020. And it's really good that we had, you know, the elimination strategy for two years, which meant we got to avoid those really, really steep, massive waves of death that we saw in other countries. But COVID is here now. It's here to stay probably forever. Uh, if you talk to any expert virologist or evolutionary biologist, they'll tell you there's no reason to think that COVID is going to become less severe by just mutations. It's it's not destined to. It could just easily as easily become more severe or maintain its current severity. And so what that means is um, we need to have a proportionate response to to the reality that we're living with. Even though it's not as bad as we had feared previously, it's it's still from an objective level, I guess, I, th- I think pretty serious. Uh, and I, I, d- I think that, yeah, that, that reality isn't being engaged with. 
The other thing about COVID that I think gets almost no coverage uh, and, and is very rarely mentioned by the government either uh, is, is that deaths aren't the only metric that's important here. So, you know, hospitalizations are important, both because they put pressure on the health system and, and we know the health system is under pressure quite a lot right now. Tonight, what happens when health's first line of defence starts to falter? As many as half the country's GP clinics aren't enrolling new patients amid a cocktail of winter illnesses, COVID infections and short staffing. But also because if you're hospitalised with a respiratory illness, even if you don't die, that has a significant impact on your life in the near term and potentially in the long term. And then the other thing that gets very little focus compared to the seriousness of it is long COVID. You know, at best, maybe 2% of people will end up with uh, long COVID after getting COVID. At worst, it's closer to maybe 5 or 10%, which is significant when you think that half the country was infected in the first wave and we're expecting a second wave that could be just as, uh, just as large, who maybe can't work as well as they used to or are less productive at work. Maybe they don't go to work at all. Maybe they are struggling to take care of their children or feed themselves. You know, it's a huge range of of the impacts that long COVID can have on someone. But when you have this many people infected, this many people exposed to the virus, and then this many people getting long COVID, you're going to see you're going to see the full extent of that range across, a, you know, in New Zealand, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. Just in terms of you know, where we are in the here and now, we're talking on the 4th of July. Happy Independence Day, by the way. Thanks. Where are we at in Aotearoa when it comes to COVID? How prevalent is it? What is the state of play at the moment? What is the trend telling us in terms of daily case numbers and deaths and, and hospital admissions? What What's the situation here? So on the current situation, uh, it is the 4th of July. It's Monday. Um, we have about... 6,900 cases a day on average over the last week from the, from the figures from Sunday. Um, and that's up from 4,900 the, the previous week. So we've gone up 2,000 cases a day uh, over the past week, which is a, a significant rise. Uh, up um, 40% in one week is, is huge. The daily death toll averages 14 uh, deaths a day uh, is the seven-day rolling average. We know that about 20 to 25% of COVID deaths are, are later found to be completely unrelated to COVID uh, and that the remainder are either actually directly due to COVID or with COVID as a contributing factor, meaning that someone wouldn't have died when they did uh, if not for COVID. Mm. And so you can keep that in mind when you hear the 14 figure. So maybe it's closer to 10 or 11 deaths a day, but that's still quite significant. And like I said, that gets you to... 3,500 deaths a year it would be uh, at a minimum on, on if that pace were carried out over the year. And the lowest that number has gotten since the beginning of the Omicron wave is, is to ten, 10 daily deaths uh, from the official Ministry of Health statistics. So maybe eight in, in terms of actual, real, true, because of or from COVID deaths. That's the current situation. We're, we're heading up into a second wave. Even the situation sort of between the waves when we got to our lowest point was still quite significant with uh, 4,500 cases a day. And that was probably an underestimate of about half. We think that probably about half of cases, actual cases, are being reported. Some of those cases not being reported are because people don't have symptoms. So they're not actually testing. Others, the symptoms may be very mild, so people don't get tested. Whilst others, of course, may be testing but not reporting the result. So the, the reality was we were probably getting about 9,000 people infected each day at, at the lowest point. Um, and like I said, with 
uh, daily deaths not dropping below 10 uh, in, in terms of the, the rolling average, at least. Um, and consistently for the past few months, we've had about 350 to 400 people in hospital on any given day with COVID. Uh, today or on Sunday, it was 400, 424. You've mentioned a couple of times as well that we likely headed into a new peak, which is something that, that many health authorities are saying. But can, can you explain what's the what's the reasoning behind that? Is that to do with winter, essentially? Yeah, there, there are three things here. So we probably would have seen a peak, a new wave regardless, because of winter and because of waning immunity. So we know that uh, COVID seems to have a, a seasonal sort of advantage. It spreads easier in winter. We spend a lot more time indoors in winter than we do in summer. Um, and COVID spreads best in crowded, indoor, poorly ventilated locations. That will have a, a, an impact on how easily COVID spreads. We also have waning immunity. So our big booster rollout was mostly across January. So we're, we're coming up on six months since most people had their last uh, shot. And people who will have been infected in the Omicron wave, mostly in March and in April, uh, will also be experiencing um, that sort of infection-induced immunity waning. So with those two factors alone, we would have expected over winter to see a, a bump in cases, but it probably wouldn't have been quite uh, as big as the first Omicron wave that we had. The driver of, of what sort of uh, moved this wave earlier a bit and is making people concerned that it will be as big as the first wave is the new BA5 variant. These are more transmissible because they escape the immunity we've already got. It's difficult to predict exactly what they'll do, but we can be pretty sure the numbers are going to go up and it may be quite sustained. It's 10% of cases that are sequenced in the community now, which is uh, double where it was two weeks ago. And the best estimates from you know modelers and, and computational biologists are by mid-July, more than half of cases will be BA5. We estimate that the proportion of um, of cases that BA5 makes up is is roughly doubling every couple of weeks. So it's a yeah, so it's a significant growth advantage it has. Maybe similar to what um, uh, even a bit more than what BA2 had over BA1. The conditions, the environment is already right for a, a, a second wave. But the BA5 variant is going to uh, really sort of um, put the fuel on the fire, I guess, and push us into a really significant second wave. And then the modeling suggests that that second wave could be, in, in terms of where it peaks, just as high as as, peak, uh, as we peaked in the first wave. And in terms of that second wave and our preparedness to deal with things there, this year is expected to be an unusually severe year in terms of flu cases. We've had four times the presentations of flu this year, four times higher the presentations of flu than compared to 2019. What's your understanding of why this year is expected to be especially bad when it comes to flu? The main reason is it's it's an immunity issue, essentially. Um, if you look at uh, sort of New Zealand's weekly mortality curve, you can see every year on average, you have relatively few deaths in the summer, say sort of 650 per week. And then you get to winter and you start getting much higher numbers of deaths. So uh, 900, 1,000 per week. And that's because of things like seasonal influenza, because of other respiratory illnesses. Essentially, there's just a crunch of unwellness and sickness that, that happens in winter in New Zealand. If you look at the mortality curves for 2020 and 2021, you see actually 
they're pretty flat. So because of the first lockdown, we essentially eliminated influenza in New Zealand. From there on, with closed borders and people having to go through MIQ with very strict infection prevention and control, we didn't let influenza back into the country. Uh, so we had two winters without uh, flu, which was great. It meant that a lot of people who would have died didn't, and, and probably 3,000 fewer people died over the past two years than we would have expected to, even in a non-COVID world, just because of avoiding that winter respiratory burden. But now the borders are open, flu is back, and uh, a lot of people who would have been uh, hospitalized or killed in those earlier flu waves are, are now experiencing that. And people uh, who might have been infected and gotten a bit of immunity in previous waves don't have that. So they're going to be a bit sicker than they would have been, perhaps, um, or more likely to get catch flu in the first place. Mostly for all of those sort of interrelated immunity issues, uh, it, it means that the flu is now in the community and it is, it's taking off uh, quite a bit. Can we draw a straight line between COVID and this increased pressure on the health system that is leading to underperformance all in all? Yes. So COVID is responsible for the increased pressure on the health system. There are other things that are also responsible for it. But um, if you take any one of them out, then there would be less pressure on the health system for sure. So, you know, the, the way the health system usually operates in New Zealand is that uh, in summer it gets goes pretty well. And if you break your arm, you'll be seen pretty quickly at the A&E. And in winter, there's always pressure on the health system, depending on who you talk to. If you talk to the health minister, he'll say, well, that's quite normal and we're very good at dealing with it. And if you talk to nurses and doctors, they'll say, it's an absolute hell and we hate working in winter because we are always so overloaded. So that's the default in the New Zealand health system. It's, it's chronically underfunded and it means that it is always pushed to the brink during a regular winter without a, the context of a pandemic or a sort of significantly resurgent uh, influenza outbreak. Now we're in that context. And so that means the flu is, is certainly, you know, even without COVID, the health system would be experiencing uh, capacity issues because of the, the crunch from the flu. But COVID uh, plays a, a major role in, in sucking up resource. It, you know, you have 424 people in hospital with COVID right now. Uh, you have probably about 100 people uh, a day admitted to hospital with COVID. Even the people who end up in hospital and test positive for COVID, but they're not there for anything COVID related, require more resource to take care of than someone who is there for the same issue, but doesn't test positive for COVID. So if I break my leg and I show up in hospital and uh, you know they, they uh, ask me to take a rat and I do and I test positive, I'm going to have to be put on the COVID ward. And a lot of efforts going into preventing COVID from spreading you know, elsewhere within the hospital to all the other vulnerable people who are receiving treatment for other issues. The fact that COVID is so prevalent in the community means that, that uh, hospitals are having to take a lot of extra precautions in order to um, stop it from spreading within hospitals. Authorities say there's evidence of visitors to North Shore Hospital passing COVID on to patients. They're reminding visitors to stay away if they're unwell and to respect hospital rules if they do visit. Because the lesson we've consistently seen from overseas is that's when you really start, things start to really go downhill is when you have in-hospital transmission of COVID because all your other vulnerable people are at the hospital. Uh, so then you start to end up with a lot more people who are severely sick. And because uh, once your healthcare staff start getting sick, they have to be stood down and um, you then have even less capacity to actually deal with the increased demand from more and more people who, who are severely ill with COVID. Um, so it's sort of like a, 
a, a nasty, you know, between a rock and a hard place there where you have on the one hand, COVID is increasing demand for services. And on the other hand, it's reducing the capacity of the health care system by, by taking staff out for, uh, for extended periods of time. When we see the strain that the health system is under here, I put it to you that this is utterly predictable and that actually maybe this is an area where there is some blame to, to go around and not immediately uh, bolstering resourcing for the health sector. Yeah, I think so. Resourcing for the health system was uh, boosted at the start of the pandemic, and the government has put a lot of money into it since. It takes time to increase health system capacity to train doctors and nurses, although you can bring them in from overseas. You know, there are many places that would uh, that are short on doctors and nurses, and New Zealand isn't the only country having this problem. That said, I think you're right that the pandemic highlights the, the sort of chronically underfunded nature of the health system, and I don't think that anyone has really got a, a plan to um, truly fully turn that around. I know you weren't saying this, but some people have made the argument that the two years of elimination were worthless. They gained us nothing because look, here we are, the health system is crumbling anyways, to, to which I would say, actually, we would be in this situation regardless of whether we had eliminated COVID or let it run wild. Uh, we'd be in the situation right now because we'd still have only the same level of vaccine available to us and we'd still be dealing with the same variants we're dealing with now. It would just mean that actually many more people would be dead if we hadn't done that. And the health system would have been under even more pressure for the past two years than it has been because it would have been dealing with a, a raging COVID outbreak for, for two years. Where we're at now is the new normal, right? People say, talk about the new normal as if it's just going to be like 2019. That's the old normal. The new normal is COVID is here. We're not going to get rid of it. It's not likely to evolve itself into being no more dangerous than the flu or the common cold. Uh, and so we actually have to learn to deal with it in the community in a sustainable long-term fashion, but that actually acknowledges its seriousness. You know, one sustainable thing you could do is just pretend it isn't there. It doesn't take any effort at all. But then that means that you're putting yourself into this sort of vicious spiral where more and more people are dying of COVID, more and more people are getting long COVID and the health system is under increasing pressure. Uh, and that's how you find yourself where we are today is, is by not treating COVID with the seriousness uh, it deserves. The current burden it is placing on New Zealand in terms of, you know, potentially thousands of deaths a year, potentially tens of thousands of cases of long COVID a year, um, you know, hundreds of hospital beds full at any given time. That's not sustainable. If you agree that that's not sustainable and that's not acceptable, then we need to find a middle ground where we use public health measures that are long-term sustainable to reduce that burden to a point where we say, here's, here's the right equilibrium. Um, and maybe people disagree with me and that's fine. Maybe people will say, actually, where we're at now with the level of restriction we have and the level of burden that's in, in uh, hospitals and in New Zealand more generally, um, that's an, a comfortable equilibrium for them. And I think everyone will have a different point where that is. But I don't think that that's the conversation that we're actually having. I think that the conversation that, that seems to be going through in the media uh, and in government is, is essentially wishful thinking that, that doesn't regard COVID as a long-term threat or something that will be here for a long time. Or if it does say COVID's going to be here, um, it, it sort of implies that it's going to be here, but it's going to be harmless, which there's no reason to, to think uh, that's the case. 
That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Mark Dalder. Matewa. <laughs>